Good afternoon. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Um, I'm going to talk about bacterial infections in critically ill patients because the viral and fungal infections will be tackled by another person. So what are the magnitude of these infections? This was a study done in Europe, which was a point prevalence study, EPIC-2 study. They looked at 14,000 patients over one day in 1265 ICUs, and they found that 71% of patients were on antibiotics, which is 9,100 patients. Of these, about half had positive cultures. And the most common pathogen they isolated were Staph aureus, Pseudomonas, and E. coli. The mortality was twice in patients who were infected, and they were also had increased length of stay. And they also attributed that 40% of the hospital-related costs may be related to these infections. So they are expensive. Now, looking at the United States data, this is all healthcare-associated infections. We talk about a tremendous number of infections, the most common being a UTI, followed by surgical site infection. C. difficile, which used to be much lower, has moved as number three. And then bloodstream infection and VAP, which is the lowest. The bacteriology of ICU-related infection, if you, this is not ICU, this is all healthcare-associated. Both staph aureus and coag-negative staph are most common, and enterococci is next. But if you go down the list, Pseudomonas, Candida, E. coli, very similar. And Acinetobacter, our friend, which we always refer to, it's a problematic pathogen, is moving up the ladder as one of the nine most prominent pathogens. So what are the challenges which you see in patients who are infected? It's a common problem, but it's a very tricky diagnosis. And that's what I want to discuss a little more, infection versus non-infection. The morbidity, mortality, cost, and length of stay we already discussed is much higher. It's, there's worse outcome if used inappropriate antibiotics. However, resistance is widespread. And if you give antibiotics which are not balanced, there is collateral damage. You have C. difficile of adverse events. If you give too little, as we already discussed, you have worse outcomes. So the important, important part is that you've got to make the right choice at the right time but not to use too much of it. That is the problem. So to summarize, what are objectives of our lecture today? We are going to talk about why are infections so common in an ICU? How can you distinguish an infectious versus a non-infectious cause of so-called syndrome, infectious syndrome? We will discuss the bacterial organisms associated with these infections. And then the most important thing is, how do you anticipate what antibiotics to use? based on what you have. So the risk factors for infections in a critically ill, I always like to think of three different categories. The first is patient-related. The second is intervention-related. And the third is infection control-related. So if you look at the first category, patient comes in with bag and baggage. You can't change much. They have diabetes. They have chronic kidney disease. They are on hemodialysis. They're coming from another hospital, from another facility, they're older age. So all this is something which you cannot control. Yes, but we need to be aware what can be there so we know what to anticipate. The second category is where we make most of the differences. And if you think about the lines, the catheters, the ET tube, the devices, the hoses we have in them, if we can take those out, that will clearly decrease the rate. The second part of this equation is antimicrobial exposure. We'll talk about that a little more, but exposure to antibiotics becomes one of the major risk factors for emergence of resistance. 
And then any time you breach the skin or the mucosa, which is the major barrier for infection, there's a price to pay. So this category is the one which we need to focus most on. And last but not the least is the infection control interventions and all the risk factors. Into hospital transfer, something which has been labeled as one of the major issues for, uh, for resistant pathogen spread, and then contaminated equipment. So the first step, part of our challenge today, is to distinguish an infection from a non-infection. Now, what are the criteria for an infection? In an ICU, a temperature of more than 38.2, there is some controversy. What is the temperature you take? 38.4, 38.5. There's a recent document from uh, in CID with the various experts on critical care and infectious diseases. And they thought above 38.2, which is 101, becomes significant. Presence of rigors is something which we have seen consistently more with infection. The SIRS criteria, specific organ dysfunction. If you think of somebody with respiratory failure, decreased mental status, skin lesions, all could be accompanying an infectious process. Oligura, hemodynamic instability. White count, very high white count, very low white count presence of bands. And last but not the least are the more nonspecific markers. A sudden drop in platelet count without any explanation. Massive onset of coagulation issues, high glucose, high lactates, could all indicate infection. And this is just to remind you the four SIRS criteria, the temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and white count. Now, are these criteria, which I mentioned, all of them specific for infection? When you look at these patients with infectious criteria in ICU, and you put in parallel the infections and non-infections, all of them can produce these criteria. So let's go down the list of infectious causes. Pneumonias, UTIs, line sepsis, intra-abdominal infections, CNS infections, C. difficile, skin and soft tissue infection, and then do not forget the silent causes. Silent causes because they're not very clearly apparent. Sinusitis, because the patient does not have purulent drainage from the nose, you're not suspecting it. Otitis media, somebody who's got an endotracheal tube is not going to be able to complain that they have pain in their ears. CMV infection, if you're giving blood transfusion after a couple of weeks, they could have high fevers because of that. If you don't turn your patient, examine the perirectal area or the back area, you could have a bad infection there, which could be mimicking. A calculus cholecystitis. Some of the patients, young women, if you don't do a pelvic exam, in dwelling tampons, five days later, you get very foul-smelling discharge from the pelvic area. And that could be causing the fever. So those are the silent causes. Not to underscore the non-infectious causes, which the list is even longer. Atelectasis, chemical pneumonia, aspiration pneumonia, uh, post-operative, anesthesia-induced hyperthermia, or neuromuscular syndrome, primary stress, drug fevers, blood transfusion, any kind of CNS event, pulmonary emboli, fat emboli, any dead tissue, including MI, including a dead leg, can drive the same cytokines and produce the same syndrome. Pancreatitis, pericarditis, post-pericardiotomy syndrome, heterotopic ossification, endocrine problems, and gout. So if you think of all the criteria which I just mentioned, and you put them in parallel, all these are together. And either infection or non-infection can mimic the same criteria. 
So the first challenge for us is, when we stand by the bedside, is it infection or non-infection? Otherwise, you'll be using a heck of a lot of antibiotics for non-infectious causes. The other thing is to look at the chronology. Unless the patient is coming with a pre-morbid history or has a prior infection, the first 24 hours is very rarely that they have an infection. Even in the first 48 hours, the rates are low. They start increasing after 48 hours, and after three to five days, infections become very prominent. So chronology also plays a role. The timeline plays a role. First 48 hours, less likely, and then increasing frequency as the time goes by. The second concept is colonization. Every time we get a positive sputum, we get very excited about it. A positive sputum, it's a, an endotracheal tube is always colonized. Almost everybody who's got an endotracheal tube will have bacteria in there. If they are not, I'll be shocked. Also remember that urinary catheter, if you leave it in there, there is a colonization rate per day. So as you leave it, it's almost 3% per day. So if you think of the math, at the end of one month, almost 90% or 100% patient will have bacteria in the urine with the urinary catheter. So that also you have to keep in mind. It may not be infection. It may just be colonization. All large wounds have bacteria, and even blood can be contaminated. We'll talk about that a little more. And remember our principle, drains and hoses, they are all colonized. So you do not send cultures from a chest tube which has been in there for seven days or an abdominal drain because it's going to have bacteria on it. So that's another principle. So before I talk about specific case history, I want to bring up the resistant bacteria here. We've heard a lot about two hot things these days, the resistant gram-negative rods. Um, and that has become a major issue, the ESPLs and CREs. And I know I want you to carry this away from you because part of the whole process is thinking how to predict what bacteria and how to choose appropriate antibiotics once you diagnose an infection. So I think the most important thing here is to discuss exactly what these are. So in 2008, a term called ESCAPE was coined by Dr. Rice, who's one of the infectious disease attendings at CDC. And this was the six pathogens. In 2009, with the emergence of C. difficile, this term was now called ESCAPE. And the six pathogens which fitted in these categories were Enterococcus officium, Staph aureus, C. difficile, Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, and all Enterobacteriaceae, like Klebsiella, E. coli, were lumped in the last category. So the first discussion on resistant gram-negative rods. Now, I love that slide because it really tells you the pressure of antibiotics and how bugs come about. So the wild-type strains existed first of gram-negative rods. We first introduced penicillins. And what year was penicillin introduced in? 30s? Yeah, around late 20s, 30s by Dr. Fleming who got a Nobel Prize for discovery of penicillin for being called the discovery of the century. So how long have antibiotics been around? 80, 90 years. How long have bugs been around? One billion years. Who do you think is going to win in the end? So that's something to remember. Keep that in perspective. So remember, antibiotics were introduced in 1930s. First antibiotic used or late 1930s, 40s. He exposed the bacteria to the penicillins, which was the first antibiotic. Within a short period of time, we had production of beta-lactamases, which are enzymes which destroy the beta-lactam ring. And this particular term, TEM, came from a little girl in Greece. I don't know why microbiologists like to do that. 
but they always like to give them a special name. This kid's name was Tamarina, and she developed this first resistant bacteria. So the TEM1 came from that. And eventually, these enzymes were produced by uh, gram-negative rods, which, in, which in, knocked out the penicillins. The pharmaceutical companies stepped up and produced unisons and peptazos and cephalosporins. Soon thereafter, the gram-negative rods started producing more extended uh, beta-lactamases, and then we introduced carbapenems. And soon thereafter, we have these carbapenem hydrolyzing enzymes, which are various kinds, which now knock out the carbapenems. Why has that become so critical? If you look at the pipeline of antimicrobial discovery, you know, remember, bacteria are dynamic enemy. So while you are developing an antibiotic, bacteria are developing strategies to kill the antibiotic. So the shelf life of an antibiotic is usually five to 10 years. So it's not very profitable for the drug companies to make antibiotics. So unfortunately, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a decline of antibiotics. And you see the number of new antibiotics discovered, 2005, 2007 saw very few. And if you draw this line even further to now, the development of gram-negative broad drugs is next to none. So if you have no new gram-negative broad drugs, and we already talked about our last resort drug, carbapenem, coming under attack, we have very few choices. So we need to keep what we have. So let's talk about the first category of the gram-negative rod, which is something which you will be tackling on an everyday basis, ESPLs. This has been the formulation of beta-lactamases. Somewhere in 1970s, 80s, you start seeing this overproduction of ESBLs, as we call it. And it has really taken off. In 2009, it's become a tremendous amount, and all other kinds are also growing. Why do they spread so fast? This is a very nice case study, which was actually done by CDC, investigating an outbreak of ESBL. And what they looked at was this hospital A, which had a huge outbreak of ESBL. And they traced the pathogen, pathogens from this hospital over a 160-mile radius. And what they found out, that as they moved away from this index hospital, away, far away, the amount of ESBL which spread into the different hospitals was lower and lower. And the reason was that the patients who were transferred or the physicians or the personnel which went to the hospital, other hospitals were the major source of transmitting this ESBLs. So the transmission is by us guys and the patients. And because of poor communication, we forget to tell the transferring agency that we have this problem. And that was the major reason for spread of this pathogen. Over over the world now, not just the United States, we have seen this E. coli, which is called the CTXM, uh, or uh, ST131 clone, which has spread to every part of the world, and in fact has become really entrenched into the world. Now, what are the facts about the ESPL? The bug is resistant to penicillins, cephalosporins, and estreonam. So that is one thing you can look at your profile when you get the results from the micro lab. If the pathogen is resistant to these three groups of drugs, you can say it's ESPL. The type of pathogens which are usually in this category are E. coli, Klebsiella, and some other gram-negative rods. The other concern about this pathogen, that the rates are increasing both in the hospital and in community. And if you look at the rates outside the United States, and even in the United States, young women coming with a community-acquired UTI are now coming with ESPLs. 
And ESBLs, if you remember, are resistant to all these, which means your choice of antibiotics, even in community, is going to be very limited, which is what Asia and third world countries are seeing. There's also contamination of the environment, animals, and food. In fact, when they looked at some waters at UK, some rivers, they found ESBL contamination of the rivers. So that is something which had to be thought about. Now, persistent shedding and transmission. They found that if the family member carries ESBL, then the transmission to other family members is also extremely high. So just like MRSA, we are also giving it to each other. And then reliable identification is a major problem. So what are the risk factors for ESBL? Pretty much the standard risk factors, devices, length of stay, GI surgery, presence of tubes, any kind of feeding tube also predisposes you. Colonization of the gut, prior antibiotics, being from long-term care facility, and then something more to think about, travel to Asia. And if you have traveler's diarrhea while traveling, the risk with both these in community also is very high. So that also tells you that this is a widespread problem. This is a slide from Germany, which shows that when they used a lot more carbapenems for E. coli, for resistant E. coli, the carbapenem use went up and the ESPL rates went up. So that directly shows you that antimicrobial pressures are very important in selecting out these pathogens. Now, why do we care? As we talked about, it produces pneumonia, bacteremia, and bad intestinal infection. There is much higher morbidity, mortality, and length of stay, and much worse outcomes. And we talked about rates in community are increasing. Now, what about microbiological diagnosis? And this is something you need to take with you, because how do you suspect this pathogen? How do you think you can, what should you treat? Remember, if you're seeing resistance to cephalosporins, penicillins, and estrianam, it's most likely an ESBL. Some of these pathogens are susceptible to cefoxitin and cefotetin, but if you give it, it can develop resistance quickly, so you don't use it. So what you do is you do a test by distribution of broad dilution, and then you see the susceptibility with clavulinic acid is, is also there. So that is one of the markers. Again, there are problems with some of these testing, but this is critical. If you are going to practice in a smaller hospital or in a community hospital where microlab may not be on top of it, this is something to remember that you have to test these, and you have to know the incidence. The treatment options for these pathogens, the best drugs are carbapenems. They're clearly the number one drug. Ertapenem is not a good choice. It has shown that there are some failures. So you can use imipenem, meripenem, and doripenem. Um, you don't use cephalosporins, although it may show as effective, or piptazo because there is something called inoculum effect. If you give, if there is enough of this bug, it can counteract the drug. So if you have ESPL, your automatic choices are usually carbapenems. There is also some data on immunoglycosides and quinolones, but there is minimal data, so you can't use that. And again, that tells you if you can't use quinolones, you can't use Bactrim. Somebody who comes from community-acquired UTI with ESPL, you have very limited choices. You're going to go to IV antibiotics. That's the problem. And then duration of therapy is the same. You don't need to treat these bugs longer. The second category I want to talk about is CREs, carbapenem resistance. Now, this is something which is now labeled as a very hot topic, and CDC is stepping up and talking about this all the time. There are two mechanisms of resistance for CREs which you have to look at. One is the loss of foreign channel, and the second, which is very important, is the production of a carbapenem 
hydrolyzing enzyme, which is present in the uh, periplasmic space. And these are the two major mechanisms for producing CREs. Just like, just like um, ESPLs, carbapenem-resistant uh, carbapenem gram-negative rods are also widely distributed, have been found in the United States as well as South America and different parts of the world. So what are the facts? The rates are increasing. In the United States, the first cause was in New York City, as, as everything else. Everything good starts in New York City. So New York City has a large reservoir of very diverse population. And one thing which I spoke to a couple of people from New York City, infectious disease physician, a lot of these people, geriatric patients, are coming back and forth between the hospital and going back to the uh, long-term care facility. And a lot of these different populations don't want their elderly um, family members to die. So they keep receiving antibiotics and going back. And that has been one of the major reasons that this KPCs, or the resistant CRE, started in New York City. But now, it has spread worldwide. The mechanism we talked about, the most common organism is Klebsiella, and it's under the name of KPCs, which you will see all over the place. It is resistant to fluoroquinolones. The antibiotic you potentially could use could be amikacin, cholestin, and tigacycline. You're already talking about our last resort antibiotic. There's not much left, left after this, and that's what I want to point out. And that's why carbapenem resistant becomes such an issue. And it is spreading both in the community and the hospital. Again, the same kind of risk factors as you saw with ESPLs. Um, Long-term care facilities are one of the major reservoirs. We talked about the spread in New York City. Multiple studies have shown that long-term care facilities are the major reservoir. And one thing I want to point out, we keep talking about infection control measures in the hospital setting and ICU setting. But if you look at the long-term care facilities where about 1.5 million Americans live, and we are expecting that in the next 20 years, one of four of uh, American citizens will be in a long-term care facility, more than 40% of these patients are not even cohorted. And there's no infection control officer there. We are not tracking anything there. The staffing is very poor. The staff turnover is very high. So if you think of this reservoir, it is developing more and more, and we are not concentrating on that. We are only concentrating on a small part and as we keep moving patients in and out, we are just increasing this reservoir and transmitting these pathogens. So the other issue, again, is when to suspect it. And that is another thing you need to note. If your microlab is not on top of it, then you need to be on top of it. If you have high MICs to carbapenems, but the scary part is sometimes the MICs may not be that high. They may be borderline. If you have borderline MICs, you still have to suspect it. And the test which you do is something called the Hodge test. And I did not know how to explain it to you, so I thought a picture will be the best. What they do is they put a disc of a carbapenem in the center. They put a susceptible strain like an E. coli around the disc, which should be completely hydrolyzed by this disc because the carbapenem should kill it. And then they streak the bacteria they want to test. The two bacteria here are susceptible, that's why the bug is growing, but here, this is the resistant Klebsiella, so you see E. coli is able to grow all around it. And this test, although is not standardized, in one, is one of the tests the micro lab can use. So if you suspect a CRE, you can request a Hodge test, and that might confirm that it's a CRE. So how do you prevent CREs, which is a huge problem? 
CDC is now pushing that we should actually try to do surveillance cultures, and it should be perianal and perirectal cultures. We should not totally rely on clinical cultures because it may not be totally always there. And based on that, they have shown there may be a 4.7 reduction in the transmission. We have to focus on antimicrobial stewardship, use antibiotics properly, get the catheters out, particularly urinary catheters. We have to focus the infection control on all healthcare arenas. We talked about long-term care facility. And in Israel, they've now started publicly reporting the CRE and the ESBLs, and they have shown a decline in their rates. So something we have to look up to and see what we can do in future. So now let's go through a few case history to discuss infection versus non-infection now. So case history one. This is the 29-year-old female who comes to ICU with C-spine fractures with quadriplegia, facial fractures, and pulmonary contusion. She spikes a temperature to 39.4 on day six of admission. Cultures are drawn. Two days later, blood cultures turn positive, one out of four bottles with GPCs and clusters. So what next? Start vancomycin. Any other choices? I'm sorry? Fish test, all right. So DNA probe. Microlab is not ready for it, it broke down. Change lines, okay. The most important is, how do you interpret a positive blood culture? If you look at these three categories, what is true bacteremia? Very unlikely if it's a Corine bacterium, Bacillus, or Propiani bacterium, the skin bacteria. Most often they're contaminants. The second one, which is uncertain, half-half, is coag negative staph. It could be positive depending on the risk factors, or it may not be positive. And likely are the five other bugs which you see up there. Gram-positive coxine clusters could be either this or this. So what do you do? You assess your patient. You look at the patient has central lines, IVC, has critical grafts, for example, Gore-Tex graft, orthopedic hardware. Look at how sick your patient is. If the patient is sitting in the bed and reading a newspaper and eating an omelet, nah, you're not, this is not real. Um, you look at your blood culture data, number of days, when was it drawn, how many bottles, how many bottles were drawn, where was it drawn from, was it drawn from a line or was it a peripheral stick? And then you think of treatment strategies. Is it real or is it contaminated based on this data? If patient is sick, yes, I would start vancomycin. If patient is not sick, I would just re redo blood cultures, request a fish test, which should be back within a short time. Can tell you coag negative staph versus staph aureus. Change lines if you need, and then reassess. If you start antibiotics, reassess again. And that's why I just want to press that you have to draw repeat cultures. Because if you don't do them and you forget about them, then you don't know it's transient or this is long-term or what's happening. So that's the critical thinking. But here, you're dealing with both real versus contamination. One bug which we didn't talk about was MRSA, so I want to briefly talk about that. Uh, this was a study done by a couple of medical students who had nothing better to do. There's a whole bunch of medical students here. Um, so they put them to work and then made them culture different parts of various areas you go to. So prison institutions, steering wheels of cars, rental cars, which we drive all over the place, airplane tables, the tables we play pool on or we eat off the table. And they found MRSA was prevalent everywhere. And if you look at this pathogen, I think Dr. Kaplan, who's my 
teacher and my mentor used to tell me that everybody's focused on gram-negative rods. What's going to kill us is MRSA. Uh, I remember that. So one thing I have learned over time being in shock trauma is you mess with other bugs, but you never mess with MRSA. It is the best suited pathogen which can live in this environment. If you look at the top line, you know, penicillins were discovered here. Very quickly, bug became resistant to penicillin, introduced methicillin. Very quickly, methicillin MRSA came up. And over time, even without antimicrobial pressure, CA MRSA came up, and now we have VRSA strains. And if you look at this particular part of the slide, if you look at the MRSA mortality, to, to date, it's even higher than HIV. So it's the best suited bug, which has really adapted to different antimicrobial pressure and still continues to kill and cause major problems. So this is a pathogen, not, not an easy pathogen to reckon with. I'm going to skip this slide. So, so going back to our patient, again, I think the critical part is interpretation of a positive blood culture. And you have to look whether the patient is sick or not. And based on that, you base your decision to treat. This is case history two. This is a 27-year-old male, post-motor vehicle crash with traumatic brain injury, rift fractures, and flail chest, and bilateral femur fractures. Day three, spikes of fever to 39 degrees centigrade. White count is 15,000. His chest x-ray has right lower lobe infiltrate. He's requiring more vent support, and his ET specimen has been sent, still pending. What does he have? Bacteremia. <laughs> Could it be something else? Okay, SIRS response. Anybody else? FAP, number two. Anything else? Atelectasis, great. Anything else? Looking at the history. Permanent contusion, fat emboli. So I'm glad all of you said that. If you look at this chest x ray, this right lower lobe atelectasis, according to me. So make sure that when you suspect somebody like that, there are other conditions which can mimic VAP. And the most common condition in ICU is atelectasis. Um, congestive heart failure, pulmonary cruel contusions, contusions, ARDS, everything. So the most important thing at this point is giving aggressive mobilization and doing recruitment techniques and aggressive chest physical therapy. So the, what are the criteria for VAP? Fever which this patient has, sputum change in quality or, or quantity, high or low white counts, a sputum gram stain, which is positive, if you have that result, and a small percentage, less than 5%, will have positive blood culture. A chest x-ray with this new or evolving infiltrate and worsening respiratory function. <coughs> Excuse me. I have the bug. It's atelectasis. The only thing which kept me alive was, uh, was uh, I pictured Dr. Habashi standing over me with an ET tube. <laughs> and that's why I quickly got better, because I have, so I'm gloating over me trying to push the ET tube down. So I got quickly better. So, um, and then, you know, one thing which we've added is response to mobilization, chest physical therapy, and recruitment procedure. So uh, a study which I did, uh, being a fellow in infectious diseases and shock trauma, was we looked at 82 patients and, we, and with the perfect criteria for pneumonia. The criteria for pneumonia you see up here, all matched. And this was read as a true mnemonic process. Chest x-ray was read by a radiologist as a true pneumonia. And we gave them aggressive chest physical therapy. I'm talking about every two hours. We were beating, beating the heck out of them. 
you know. So they were getting mobilization, recruitment, aggressive chest physical therapy. And out of those 82 patients, we saw 80% of patients improved purely with chest physical therapy and recruitment procedures. And we withheld antibiotics on those people because we thought they didn't have a mnemonic process. So that tells you that conditions like atelectasis or collapse or whatever they have, aspiration pneumonitis, contusion, can mimic completely. And in fact, if you use aggressive mobilization and recruitment procedure, you can then take away that subgroup of people which can behave like VAP and unnecessary, unnecessary use of antibiotics can be prevented. This is a patient who was referred to shock trauma for respiratory management and for antimicrobial management. And this is a patient who did not get antibiotics. And <laughs> based on that CAT scan, you can see both bases are fully collapsed, easily could have been read as a mnemonic process. And this is five days later, proning. The chest x-ray gets, the CT scan gets completely better and patient does not get antibiotics. Shows you the value of recruitment procedure. So if you decide that it is VAP, one thing we need to look at the microbiology of VAP. This is a study done which looked at 24 different studies and looked at 1,700 episodes of pneumonia and 2,500 organism. The most common pathogen was Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Staph aureus, above 20%. Then a whole bunch of Enterobacteriaceae, 14%, and Acinetobacter has come up as the 8% pathogen. And then you have some of strep and strep nemo and haemophilus. But remember, gram-negative rods and Staph aureus, MRSA, becomes extremely important as the pathogens for <coughs> pneumonia. This is another study which looked at the role of antibiotics and mechanical ventilation. And if you look at this category, the last category, where we give both antibiotics, if you look at the last category, you have patients with uh, both who got mechanical ventilation over seven days, also antibiotics. If you look at the rates of pathogens in these people, Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, and MRSA become extremely prominent. It's giving you the role that if you can get the ET tube out quickly and not use antibiotics unnecessarily, you can prevent emergence of bad pathogens in the pneumonia. So management strategies for this patient. First of all, assess whether the patient has VAP or not. We talked about the differential diagnosis. And that depends on degree of illness, respiratory failure, and x-ray changes. Of all the criteria I described for pneumonia, the two you hang your hat on are the x-ray changes and the respiratory function. All the other fever, white count, and all are more nonspecific. Always send an appropriate specimen, whether you send a BAL or you send an ET suction. Uh, the ATS and IDSA guidelines do not recommend one over the other because the patient is not immunocompromised, even ET specimen is sufficient. You start your empiric antibiotics based on your thought process, and you um, do close observation and reassessment. And remember, day two or three, when you have made a decision, pneumonia or not pneumonia, or you've got your data back, remember to stop or, or optimize your antibiotics. Now, the choice of antibiotics depends on anticipation of the resistant pathogen. We talked about uh, ventilation as well as antibiotics. The time of onset, if it's under five days and patient does not have comorbid problems, more likely susceptible. After five days, more likely resistant. If you have surveillance cultures, remember what your antibiograms and are in your hospital. How sick is the patient? If patient is extremely sick with a bad infiltrate, you're going to start with broad spectrum antibiotics. And then all other factors have to be taken into account. 
case history three. This is a 65-year-old female, status post of cerebrovascular accident. Day 10 of hospital admission has a urinary catheter and endotracheal tube. It's clinically stable, but has a temp of 38.6. White count is slightly high. Urinalysis is more than 10 white cells, and there are a lot of red cells. Urine cultures are pending. What would you do at this point? Change the catheter. Take it out. Anything else? Would everybody change the catheter? Is data to support that we change the catheter? No, we don't have that much data to change the catheter. I think the only data with changing the catheter, I'm going to bring that up, is in patients who have yeast, recurrent yeast UTIs. The data with other catheters, there is some data that you've, after two weeks, if you have the same bacteria, that you should change the catheter. Apart from that, if the catheter is not blocked, the data is very minimal as to changing the catheter. Anything else you'd like to do besides changing the catheter or taking it out? Would you treat or not treat? Would you do something? Nobody would treat? Uzair. OK. Anybody else agree with Uzair or he's on his own? Uh, Dr. Kaplan would treat. Would now be, uh, would you guys be a little more antsy now? Dr. Kaplan said. No, you still won't treat. Okay. All right. <laughs> He's in the middle. He's indecisive. Okay. Okay, UTI or not. So what are the signs and symptoms of UTI? First of all, the patient has a fever and has a high white count. So you have two signs which are going along with an infection. You have positive urinalysis. More than 10 is supposed to be pyuria. So you have the third criteria for UTI. Now all this stuff, leukocyte esterase and nitrates, is a bunch of crap. If, the, if you leave the urine sitting out there on the shelf, you know, it'll have positive LE and nitrate. So when, don't hang your hat on that. What you really worry about is the white cells. What about hematuria? Remember, if there is blood, there is going to be white cells because the blood will drag the white cells. So that always makes it a little harder to diagnose, and I don't know how to tackle this. It's always an issue, especially in the trauma patients who all get a UA on day one, and everybody gets placed on Cipro because they're going for orthopedic hardware. Kills me, and we forget to send the urine cultures half the time. Remember, there is a colonization rate. The fourth criteria for UTI is a 10 to 5 positive culture, which you don't have on day one. So if you decide to treat this patient, which I think I would agree with Dr. Kaplan that I would, Remember to obtain urine cultures prior to therapy. And if the urine cultures come back negative because this patient did have hematuria, do stop the antibiotics. Because I see patient goes to the floor, patient still is on Cipro day four with negative urine cultures. So that is something you need to remember. So criteria for UTI, signs and symptoms, a positive urinalysis, a positive urine culture. So this patient should be on antibiotics. The most common organisms, E. coli, other gram-negative rods, sometimes enterococci yeast, and it could be polymicrobial. Therapy. Patients coming from long-term care facility, and we talked about ESPL's rates are going in the community. You know, we have resistance to Cipro, which is escalating. We have resistance to Bactrim, which has gone up tremendously. What should we do? A lot of people get started on ceftriaxone, which is also not going to be adequate for ESPLs but it may be adequate for most of the people. 
Often we will use Gent once a day. It is once a day therapy. It's a rapidly cidal drug. It gets concentrated in the urine. It has good susceptibility pattern, and it does not buy too much collateral damage like C. difficile. So that's something you can use. You can use ceftriaxone. Cipro is usually not a good choice unless you are fairly comfortable with the susceptibility profile. Once you get the data optimized, short course is quite optimal in most patients, and DC the Foley as soon as possible. Just reminding you the resistance rates to the in long-term care facility, if you look at the fluoroquinolones and you look at E. coli, very low rates of susceptibility. So you're talking about when you're choosing a drug like Cipro, remember, you're asking for trouble. Case history four. 74-year-old female, resident of long-term care facility for past two years, brought to ER with confusion and a temperature of 38.5. Cultures are drawn, UA has six to 10 white cells, white count is high, chest x-ray is clear. What, what will you do next from here? So what are we treating? What sites are we anticipating? Yeah, thank you. All right. So we are looking, thinking of the sites, and that's what I want to bring up. You know, she's confused. Now, elderly can be confused because you have limited blood flow, and she could have some cerebral compromise, vascular compromise. But something you have to always consider in these people, that altered mental status, it could be because of an infection, it could be because of a non-infection. She could have be having an MI or a stroke, or she could have a meningitis. So somebody who comes in with confusion in the ED, you have to start thinking what the sites are. And the chest x-ray could be clear because she could be severely dehydrated. As you give her fluids, it may fluff up and you might see infiltrates. If you start thinking she could have a UTI, doubtful with that white cells. She could have a pneumonia we talked about. She could have meningitis. You know? So doing a LP is reasonable in this patient. Always turn the patient over, look for decubitide. Maybe she has an osteo, something deeper. And then always consider, we talked about the non-infectious causes, MI, CBA, DVT, PE. All those have to be kept in mind because elderly, anything can produce confusion, including that. 74. She's not elderly, she's young. I agree, Dr. Kaplan. So, Work up for both infectious and non-infectious causes. I would consider impuring antibiotics because she does have signs of SARS and she's an elderly, she's confused. Uh, and then you have to keep all these in mind. She's from long-term care facility. Consider ESBL, CREs, MRSA. Um, you have to think of all these other things. She has a tube or she has prior comorbid history, so you have to go with that thought process. <clears throat> the choice of antibiotics would be one of the MRSA drugs. Generally, vancomycin, daptomycin, or linazolid, uh, VRE coverage, depends on our colonization history and how strongly you're suspecting what site. And then resistant gram-negative rods, you have to consider ESPLs, KPCs, and CREs. Um, all this into account. Um, you have to think about giving one of these pathogens drugs, not fluoroquinolone or unison or Bactrim, because these are the drugs which they use very commonly in long-term care facilities and bad choices. This slide briefly to talk about uh, choice CNS penetration. If you are suspecting a CNS infection, uh, this is something I've just drawn up, uh, nothing from, from my, on my own. There are drugs which penetrate well, the drugs which do, do not penetrate, and there are drugs which we don't know about. So drugs which penetrate well are very few. Third and fourth generation cephalosporins, 
Bactrim, Rifampin, Metronidazole, and Chromphenicol, which we don't use. And these drugs potentially penetrate, and these drugs we don't know about. So if you're going to choose CSF drugs, remember, choose drugs which are optimal. <clears throat> Case history five. I have this 36-year-old fell from a lawnmower. This is a real case. I took care of her. Uh, grade 3B fracture of left humerus. She underwent external fixation and ORIF, diagnosed with osteo. Uh, later, discharged on cefepime, cipro, and vanco. She had uh, pseudomonas and MRSA infection, pseudomonas, which was partially susceptible to cipro. Three weeks into treatment, developed fever, renal failure, and confusion. What will you do with her? <clears throat> Differential diagnosis. Drug fever. Okay, agreed. Keep going. Undrained. Pus in the arm. Two. Resistance, three. So differential diagnosis here. Super infection at a new site. Either she has a UTI, C. difficile. Keep that into account. Remember, she's been on antibiotics. She has a line. Remember, we are giving her cefepime and vanc. Pneumonia. Infection at the same site with the resistant bacteria we talked about. And then think of all the non-infectious causes. Does she have a PE? Could she have acute kidney injury because of our antibiotics? Um, and a confusion and allergic response all because of antibiotics. Or she has an unusual condition. She's a young woman. Does she have a topic pregnancy? So in this case, she turned out to be C. difficile. And she had no diarrhea. I just want to tell you that. That was the most confusing part. So look at the timeline for C. difficile. First identified in 1978, related to clindamycin. Soon found out that penicillins and cephalosporins are also related. In 2003 to 2006, we saw increasing incidence and saw more severity and relapse. And we found that this bug was now refractory to our standard flagell therapy. The new strain called NAP1 was the one which emerged which had more virulence and had more toxin production. It was directly related to fluoroquinolone use. In fact, uh, it started in Montreal, where uh, the authorities there decided to use fluoroquinolones as the first-line therapy for every infection in any patient who walks through ED. And within a year or two of fluoroquinolone use, we start, started seeing this NAP1 strain which emerged. Um, produced toxic megacolon and, and, and eventually colectomy was done and also increase the ICU admissions and mortality. This is the burden of C. diff, as seen in Ohio a couple of years ago. And if you look at that, this is the hospital acquired and long-term care facility required. If you look at the initial part, it's very similar. But recurrence is very high in long-term care facility. And if you look at the second part of the graph, the number of deaths from this particular C. diff strain has increased tremendously. In fact, as of last one year ago, Duke University is reporting more deaths from C. diff than from MRSA infections. So it's going up tremendously. So what are the causes of this particular pathogen? Antibiotic use, almost always, but there are differences. Clindamycin is the most frequent, followed by fluoroquinolones, carbapenems, cephalosporins, and penicillins have the lowest incidence. It is transmissible, so besides antimicrobial use, the first ICU outbreak was shown by rectal thermometers, which were shared between 12, 11 out of 12 patients, and all of them got C. diff. So it's transmissible by 
various fomites. And then a normal host carries it, and in long-term care facilities, we have found 20 to 50% patients might carry this in their GI tract. <clears throat> and their other risk factors are increasing age immunosuppression, a lot of data on gastric suppression with protonics and with H2 blockers, GI surgery and feedings, again, because they change the pH, and then cancer therapy. And the other data which is emerging is the colonization of domestic animals. They also may be a source for C. difficile in future. The test of choice, it is recommended that only patients with diarrhea should be screened. So I don't know what you do with this lady who had no diarrhea. Um, the preferred test is the PCR, which is the best test. It's better than the EIA test. GDH has been done, but it's not as good. We don't do repeat testing because carriage is not uncommon. And this is a toxin, so you do not test like a bacterial culture for a cure. You don't repeat the tests. General principles of treatment, um, if there is strong suspicion, you should start therapy. Try to remove the antibiotic because that's one of the most important causes and not use antiperistaltic agent because they increase the duration. For mild to moderate C. diff, you use flagell. For severe C. diff, use vancomycin. If you do not respond to flagell in five to seven days, you switch to vancomycin. And mild to moderate C. diff, in patients who are pregnant or intolerant to flagell, you can use vancomycin too. The other principle is if you cannot reach the colon where you are supposed to, where the activity is, because of various surgical conditions, one of these conditions, then you deliver vancomycin to the site by enema. For severe and complicated C. difficile, the treatment of choice is vancomycin PO and IV vancomycin if you do not have, if you have gut function. If you do not have gut function to the same IV flagell and PO vancomycin, you add the vancomycin enemas. Always replace IV fluids and electrolytes because these patients are very third spaced and they're dehydrated. If you do not have massive distension or ileus, always continue enteral feedings. CT scanning is recommended for complicated C. difficile. And then surgical consult should be obtained on all these patients because a good number might require surgical therapy, especially if they are hypotensive, if they have signs of organ dysfunction, their mental status changes, extremely high white counts or lactates, or they're not improving on medical therapy. So a surgical backup is always recommended. What are the emerging therapies for C. difficile? Probiotics. A lot of Cochrane analysis has been done, has looked at lactobacillus and saccharomyces, has not shown consistent benefit, but overall there is some benefit. Not for preventing, but once you get C. difficile, it might be beneficial. IVIG, for specific patients who are extremely ill, uh, for patients with IBD, that may be used. There's also been good amount of data for fecal microbiota transplant, FMTs as they call it, where you give stool transplant. And the last one is the diverting loop colostomy and colonic lavage with vancomycin. And it's been shown that it can be used as an alternative to abdominal colectomy and has been successful. So what is the current situation? We are in a dire situation where we have declining number of antimicrobial use and development. So prevention is primary. Keep washing your hands, that's the most important thing, and use your antibiotics appropriately.
I'm going to stop here and take any questions.